All right, well, there's an, an argument about when Christmas season officially starts, right? And people gripe about Christmas things happening in stores early, and there's that whole thing. But we are undoubtedly in Christmas season now, okay? We're all on the same page about that. And so um, at Redemption, we, uh, we take time to celebrate Advent, which is uh, the Latin word for coming, and it's a season um, where... Uh, we are not simply just looking at the past, we are looking at the past and the birth of Christ in order to look forward to his second coming and his glorious return. And so um, the birth of Jesus occurred after a long period of waiting, uh, the same kind of waiting that we are doing for his second return, and so that's why we celebrate Advent, to, to remember his coming in order to uh, look forward to his coming again. Um, whenever a baby is born, uh, people start making predictions. It's just kind of a thing. Uh, oh, they're going to look like their dad, or they're going to look like their mom, or they look serious, so they're probably going to be an intellectual type of person, or they're, they're really playful, so they're going to be a, a real playful kind of person. When one of our kids was born, the nurse said that they looked very serious, and they were going to be a philosopher, because they didn't cry very much at the start. And this is just kind of what happens when babies are born. Um, and then as we move along, there's moments where you can actually compare and contrast the child that's growing with the baby. So think of a high school graduation and, and, or a high school yearbook, and you see the graduating senior alongside their baby picture, and you see how that original outline kind of morphed into this young adult uh, being. But what if you could actually know what a baby would be when they were born? So what if they showed up with a little tag that read something like, average height, moderately handsome, web designer. <laughs> or like tall and spunky, cute in their own way, travel agent. Or something like that, where you just kind of knew from the start where people were at and where they were headed and what that trajectory looked like. You could classify people in a certain way and make picking a college major that much easier. All those things. What if you could actually know that? And as silly as that sounds, when you look at the birth of Jesus, there are some predetermined tags that he's been given. That throughout the Old Testament, the profile of the Savior is taking shape. And these little tags that could be tied around his toe in the manger that read, Seed of Eve, Abraham's heir, prophet like Moses, Lion of Judah, David's root. Suffering servant, son of man. God gave us those titles in advance so that his son would be known for who he is from the start. And all of the Bible has really been written and created to, to fill in this one great profile, to explain the beauty and the plan of God, which is accomplished through the person of Jesus. And so these titles that grow through the Old Testament actually expand even more in the new as he lives and dies and rises. And so it shouldn't be surprising to us when we get to the end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, we find all of these tags coming into its pages. Because the story is coming to this dramatic conclusion where now this person, this God man, is going to bring all of human history to a close. And so that's why we're going to spend a good chunk of Advent in Revelation chapter 5. We're going to look at a few of those tags, a few of those descriptions, and trace them backwards through the Scriptures to see the glory of Jesus. 
You might think, well, why are we in Revelation? Why aren't we talking about Mary and shepherds and wise men and all those things? And that's because, in the end, seeing Jesus in Revelation 5 will change the way that you see him in the manger. It will add to your sense of awe this year. We'll see that on that first Christmas, a conqueror was born. And so, for that reason, um, let's read Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Why don't we go ahead and stand uh, as do this. I will read to us Revelation 5, 1 through 10. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, and here's what it says. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Amen. You can be seated. So as we march through, just a quick outline, we'll look at the context or kind of the background of Revelation, of Revelation 5. We'll look at this deafening silence uh, and weeping no more language. It's in verses 3 to 5. And then we'll look at this tag, this first tag, Lion of Judah, and look at two responses that we'll need to make. Right, for the context of Revelation 5... um, Verses 1 through 2. John relays this vision that he's given of the very throne room of God okay, in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And he describes the vibrant colors and the awe-inspiring creatures that you find in chapter 4. that are constantly singing, holy, holy, holy to the Lord God Almighty. I mean, everything in heaven is just overwhelmed by the glory of God in this scene. And that leads into chapter 5, which begins with this problem. It says, then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So this is the problem. A scroll can't be opened. Now, that might not seem like that big of a deal to you. You might be thinking, why doesn't someone get a letter opener and just really work at this thing and go for it and open this scroll. What is the significance of what's happening here? 
Well, this scroll is actually something that enacts God's final plans. This scroll contains the judgment and salvation that the whole scripture has been talking about up until this point. This scroll is described in other places in Ezekiel 2 and Daniel 12 as as containing God's pending judgment. One author describes it this way. He describes this scroll as bringing the world to its conclusion. See, it's not just getting the thing open that's the issue. It's being able to fulfill what's found within the scroll that's the issue. The question is, who can bring the culmination of God's plan and promises to a conclusion? Who can wrap this thing up? Who has the authority and the power and the dominion to do that? Think about this. All the promises of rescue, of upending evil, of bringing justice to what is unjust, of removing pain and tears and disease, of vengeance on God's enemies, on the, the hope of an uninterrupted life with God, all of those things are wrapped up in this scroll. And the book of Revelation is meant to create endurance in the lives of God's people. Right? It was the light at the end of the tunnel that was the final lap in the marathon of their faithfulness to God. And so, for example, in Revelation 1.9, John in the introduction says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Revelation 6.10, the souls of martyrs cry, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Revelation is about stirring endurance amongst God's people. <coughs> and so if this scroll doesn't get open, it's disaster. Nothing is going to be made right if it's not open. Nothing makes sense if this scroll isn't opened. Nothing matters if this scroll isn't opened. I mean, imagine a guilty verdict being delivered in a courtroom after an exhausting trial, taxing for the family, taxing for, for all involved, and finally the jury reaches a verdict. And they come in the room and they give the verdict to the judge and he sits there at his desk and for some reason he can't quite get it open. And so he starts passing it around the courtroom and everyone's taking their shot at it and no one can unveil what's going to happen. Imagine the confusion, the injustice, the awkwardness, the unresolved uh, tension in that room. I mean, consider how much rides on the completion of God's plans. Can you imagine getting the end of human history as we know it? Waiting for this masterful, redemptive, and purposeful story to be told, only to hear that none of it really can be finished. And there really was no point to the whole thing. You can see why now this scroll matters and why opening it matters. And that's why this angel who can shout and his voice can penetrate every corner of of the earth and under the earth and all around, saying, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? See, he wasn't looking for volunteers. The angel is looking for who's qualified to pull this off. Who can do this? Who can finalize the plan of God? Who can be entrusted to perfectly complete His will? And see, the reason why these documents in ancient times were sealed is because it was kind of the Roman world's way of ensuring that only the person who was intended to receive it is the one who opened it. That's why if they wrote a will, they would wrap it and seal it, and then the the heir of that will would only be the one who could open it. So there's really only one who can do this. 
And you sense the desperation of verses 3 and 4, searching everywhere. And John knows the significance of this, and that's why he's weeping loudly. You've got to be kidding me. On the island of Patmos, I've spent all my life thinking that this was it. And when this angel asks this question and there's only silence, he's, he's petrified. And do you hear the deafening silence of this moment? There are questions like this that we can get little shadows and little tastes of. Like, does anyone know CPR? Has anyone seen my child? But picture these heavenly beings asking, is anyone coming to redeem humanity? Is anyone really on the way? And then only hearing silence to that question. It might have been like the silence, if you think about it, between the times of the Old and New Testaments. There was 400 years in between the time of the last Old Testament revelation and the birth of Christ. No prophet in Israel, no new information, five generations of nothing. Only waiting, only people speculating about who the Messiah was. And seemingly out of nowhere, these wise men see a star. Shepherds have this angelic vision. This childless priest is visited by an angel in a temple. A new prophet's born. All this stuff starts happening. A virgin's going to be told she's going to have a kid and... All this stuff just starts breaking loose. And when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And four centuries of silence is broken. And there's all this pent-up expectation you find if you've been looking through Luke 1 and 2 as we've been meditating on that and looking at the Gospel of Luke where this mute priest is finally filled with the Spirit and shouts, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he's visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. And on it goes. A Simeon, a man named Simeon, whom God promised would see the Messiah in Luke 2, says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Anna, a prophetess who'd been waiting all of her adult life, essentially, in the temple, praying and fasting and waiting for the redemption of Israel, says, began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. All of these characters saying, finally, the silence is broken. And the silence in Revelation 5 is broken by an elder who speaks up in verse 5 and says, weep. No more. Behold, look, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, he is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so we think, who is this uniquely qualified person? What, what are these titles that he's given? And that's what we're focusing our time on uh, this morning and in the weeks to come. And this morning I want us to look at the Lion of Judah. What is meant when this elder says he is the Lion of the tribe of Judah? How does that help us to marvel at the manger and, and these things again? 
a lot of Revelation's language is coming from the Old Testament. And so I want to t- tell you two things about this phrase, Lion of Judah. Um, the first is just kind of to help you understand what they thought of lions in their day. Okay? Lions were terrifying to their culture. They were viewed as ferocious predators. They were, they were seen as these fearless, you know, the heart of a lion is something that you actually find in Scripture. They're relentless animals. They're intimidating animals. And most of the times you run across lions in the Bible, someone's dead somewhere. It's like almost a foregone conclusion because they're feared in this way. And so the few times that people defeat lions, it's, it's to say God was involved because you need to have supernatural help in order to do that. So a little biblical gore for you this Christmas season on lions, okay? Numbers 23, 24, behold, a people, as a lioness, it rises up, and as a lion, it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. Deuteronomy 33, 20, Gad crouches like a lion. He tears off arm and scalp. Proverbs 30, three things are stately in their tread, four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is mightiest among beasts and does not turn back before any. I've got a bunch more, but you get the idea, okay? They were terrified of lions. It was not Mufasa, Circle of Life, uh, Lion King, C.S. Lewis Aslan, kind of behind a cage kind of a thing, okay? Like you see a lion, it's always bad in their day, okay? So that's the first thing you got to know. But the second thing, this description of the lion of the tribe of Judah is, is in a text. So turn back all the way back. Notice you're going all the way back to the first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 49. Because this is really where the language is picked up from, and I want to show that to you. Now, um, a couple things for context. So before we get to this, when you hear Judah, you might think of the land of Judah, right? And it... it it is describing a land, but it's also first describing a person and then a tribe and then a land. Okay, in Genesis 49, Jacob is about to die and he's talking to his sons. Um, Joseph is probably the most well-known son of Jacob, but Judah is Jacob's fourth son. Do you remember the uh, baby competition that broke out between Rachel and Leah and they're doing all they can to beat the other one and really healthy family stuff going on in Genesis? Um, Judah is one of those sons, and, and if you remember, Joseph's brothers are crummy, right? He's slightly less crummy because he actually offers to sacrifice himself at various points in the Genesis narrative. But this guy, Judah, is not, um, he's not a, a model citizen by any stretch. Um, so much so that when the author of Genesis is trying to pick a story to describe just how despicable Joseph's brothers are, he picks the story of Judah... And Tamar, where Judah goes out of town and hires a prostitute who happens to be his daughter-in-law, and it gets worse from there, but just yuck, okay? Judah, he's got some bad things going on in his background. And so what's interesting about Genesis 49 is that Jacob starts the blessing, cursing of his sons, and he starts off, and the first first couple guys are not not good guys. And so uh, he plows through the list. We're kind of searching for where is this seed going to going to go next, right? And you kind of think, well, Joseph seems to be the natural one. So Jacob's going through in Genesis 49. Reuben, no, there was some stuff that happened with the family. He's not going to be in. Uh, Simeon, and you can read all about it, but I'll give you the PG version. Uh, Simeon and Levi, they're hothead brothers, so they're out. So one, two, three are gone. And we get to Judah, and we think, 
Well, it's just going to be worse because of what Judah did, and he's going to be kind of like the first three. But we're really surprised in verses 8 through 10 when the text says this. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, or until the one whom is appointed receives it, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now we can stop there. Interesting, it's not what you expect. And two things to notice. One is that Judah is somehow going to be exalted above his brothers and his enemies. He's, he's given this image of a lion because he's going to be the dominant one, the one who ends up on top. He's feared by all. We see that because when it says in verse 10, the scepter and the staff, these are kingly instruments. So it's saying, Judah and the line of Judah, when it says, for example, nor the, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, it's describing future generations that are going to come after him. So in some way, Judah is going to be preeminent and his line is going to pre- be preeminent. Okay, that's the first thing to notice. But then the second thing is that a descendant of Judah is going to receive worldwide obedience and praise. The second half of verse 10 really is tricky for Hebrew scholars, and there's a bunch of options, but you really boil them down to two, okay? One, the phrase, until tribute comes to him, could mean just that, until tribute, which is what's due a king after they win, right? They get all the stuff, they get all the slaves, they get all the people, and they carry it off. That's kind of what kings are owed, and so a lot of people think this has more of a reference to David, who's going to be this king who's... You know, the kingdom expands, obviously, under his rule. Um, He's defeating Gentile peoples. He gets a lot of stuff. Um, And so the the picture then would be these nations bringing gifts to King David. The second option, and instead of until tribute comes to him, is to say until it comes to the one to whom it rightfully belongs. And there's several ancient texts that actually use messianic language to describe this really starts with Judah and talks about his future generations, but it's narrowing down to the point where there's actually going to be one who receives this permanent kingship that's described to the point where all the obedience of the peoples are going to be to this one descendant of Judah. Okay? Now, it could be either one. You could say the first one is messianic in tone. But I I lean more towards the second description of that for a couple of reasons. One, I think it flows well with the thought when it's saying the scepter is going to be within the tribe of Judah. It's going to keep moving from generations, right? The staff from between his feet. And then it's going to end up on one person. I think that progression of thought makes sense. It's also that a lot of different peoples gave their obedience to David, but In a Gentile sense, it's a much better description of what the Messiah is going to be like, where he's obviously going to receive worldwide, global obedience from people when he returns. The wealth that's described in verses 11 and 12, it's this insane, like, 
prosperous kingdom where they're tying up donkeys to even the most expensive grapevines. Like, oh, we lose a few grapes, no big deal. We're washing our clothes in it. Like, it's a description of the messianic era. It's a description of this abundance of wealth that seems beyond the time of David. And then we have Revelation 5 that's linking the line of the tribe of Judah with Jesus directly. And this is really the place that it's pointing. So, for all those reasons, I think this is actually describing how this scepter, this this kingship is going to be going from Judah to his future generation that is going to land on the one to whom it rightfully belongs, which is really what Revelation 5 is, is saying. Who's worthy? Who's the one that this should land on? Okay? Now, why, why does this matter? That this matters because kind of the taste in your mouth after being in Genesis 49 is that the line of Judah is a conqueror. The line of Judah means business. The line of Judah does what he wants and rules with an authority that's unlike other things. If all the peoples are giving their obedience to him, this is not the description of just every you know, king that comes along. This is a conquering king. So that's the thought in Revelation 5. If you go back to Revelation 5 now, back to the end of the book, um, let's ask quickly, what is... What is this line of Judah conquering? It says he has conquered, but what does that mean? If you read the rest of Revelation, there's a lot of things that flow from this scene. Remember, this person has to have the power to enact and and authorize and oversee and implement all the rest of God's plans. And so as soon as these seals are broken and this scroll is unrolled, all all kinds of stuff starts happening. Okay, And you can read about it if you keep reading in... um, Chapter 5 and 6 and 7 and on. But a few things that, that come up where the, the messianic figure is overcoming things or there's a need to overcome them and is victorious. In chapter 6, verses 15 and 17, the kings and the generals of the earth, these people who are so proud of them, themselves and their kingdoms are hiding in a cave, hoping that the mountain falls on them and kills them so they don't have to face the lamb. And so Jesus is shown as being victorious or of conquering human and earthly kings. In chapter 20, Satan and his comrades are judged and thrown into a lake of fire forever. And Jesus forever conquers God's enemy, Satan. In 714 and other places, there's these white robes that people are given. They're, they're, quote, made white in the blood of the Lamb. And so Jesus conquers the effects of sin. He, he conquers it by giving his righteousness, this, these white robes, his perfect life. And he conquers sin. In 21.4, when God makes all things new, he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So Jesus, by breaking these seals, forever destroys the power and presence of death. Forever. He defeats evil. There's total victory. There's no contest. It's a complete route. It's over. And all in its place, it comes life that he gives. So what is it that the lion conquers? Well, he conquers human kings. He conquers Satan. He conquers sin. He conquers death. Opening this scroll is a big deal. Because all those things meet their demise when Jesus does so. While I was finishing the sermon last night at a 
establishment, which will not be named, um, a verbal fight broke out between two groups of people. One, uh, younger people, let's say, I don't want to throw them under the bus or anything, but a group of, of, I don't know, high school students or something were there. And a young family was there, and they were just fighting, using foul language. The parents got upset, and they're yelling back and forth, and there's claims of racism and all this stuff going on. And I'm just listening to this scene thinking, this isn't going to happen when Messiah returns. None of this kind of thing. Not a whiff of it. The Messiah will have total victory. Imagine a world, imagine this kind of a scene where there's no oppressive government, there's no unjust policy. Protests make no sense. Satan, a thing of the past. All your wrestling with sin is over. Sin is impossible and irrational and ridiculous and obedience makes the most sense. Imagine a world with no more aches or physical therapists or counseling or mental health experts or genetic dispositions or Tylenol or pain or hospice or funeral homes or caskets. Imagine all of that gone. And Jesus conquering those things so that they're not welcome back. This is what the lion has conquered. This is why it matters. And this is why the people who are Seeing the revelation of John are going to be encouraged to endure and to hang in there because they see that the Lion of Judah has conquered. There's an end to all this. And that's why the elder says, weep no more, church. Because Jesus has conquered these things. So that's the point of the image. That's the point of Revelation 5 and Genesis 49 to tell us that the conqueror has come. So how do we respond to this? Two different things. First, a response to the news that a conqueror is born. And second, a response to the news that a conqueror is coming. First thing this means, folks, is this really changes Christmas. You ever just want to, when you hear the trite simple, surfaced descriptions of what Christmas is like. And we know that the baby in the manger is the sovereign of the universe. And so it changes the way that we view Christmas. I mean, consider the Lion of Judah. What a born, what a picture of frailty and strength at the same time. I mean, think about the description in Revelation 5. This being was nursed and taught. He needed to be comforted when he hurt himself. It's amazing that God came to earth, isn't it? As the sovereign, there's this mixture of vulnerability and invincibility, and that's just how Jesus is, right? He's king and he's servant. He's tender, he's tough, he's compassionate, he's just, he's all these things mixed together. He's Psalm 2, which describes this heavenly scene where God and his anointed one are laughing at the plots of human beings and human kings. We're trying to figure out how do we overthrow this Messiah and just get back to our kingdom. And it says that, that the Lord and his anointed laugh at them. And it continues on and it describes 
And it seems like a very authoritative description of the Messiah. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And it says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. And all of that makes in Psalm 2. That all makes sense. First 12 and a half verses. And then at the very end, it says this, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And where did that come from? Terrifying king who's going to judge all these you know, human authorities. Oh, but if you take refuge in Him, you're blessed. Right? This is Messiah. That's, that's a description of who Jesus is. These two things together. And at Advent season, we are welcome to, to awe and to marvel at those two, two aspects of the person of Christ. And if you're not trusting Jesus this morning, I, wanna, I want you to face squarely what, we, what we're really saying. That Jesus is the Lion of Judah. He is the conqueror. And when He returns, every knee will bow in submission and there will be no denying His authority then. But there is an opportunity now in this life to acknowledge and submit to his authority before that time. As we talk about the Lion of Judah, it stirs fear within us, and that's right. That's good. We don't change who God is in order to worship something that's more palatable to us. We adjust to his revelation. We succumb to what he says he is, right, and who he says he is. So while this lion is going to conquer in the end, God does say that if we acknowledge our rebellious hearts and trust in what Christ has done by living and dying and rising to make us right with God, the lion of Judah becomes our protector. It's amazing this baby will perfectly complete the plans of God and yet he'll stand over all nations and king and you and I. And we will all face him. So the question is, in what way will the Lion of Judah conquer you? Will he conquer you in wrath because of your refusal to acknowledge him? Or will he conquer you with love, satisfying his own justice by the sacrifice of himself? It is not a question of if, but how. And if you don't know Christ this morning, you need to face that squarely. So, that's a response to the news that a conqueror was born in the person of Jesus. How about a response to the news that this conqueror is also coming? This is great news, right? The conqueror is coming. <coughs> And knowing this ahead of time changes how we live, doesn't it? I mean, it kind of shakes things up a little bit if you think about it. Think about the difference between knowing how a tense movie ends and not knowing that, like the difference in, in feeling by knowing the end from the beginning. Think of the difference between running the final lap of a race, you know it's going to be over soon, versus a coach just telling you to run lines at basketball practice and you have no idea when it's going to stop, right? And the hopelessness of that. Think of the difference between being stranded somewhere, knowing that help is on the way, versus being stranded and not having cell reception and not knowing how to get help. 
Knowing the end, knowing the conclusion changes how we experience life and how we live. And it's meant to do that. So by remembering that Jesus Christ is a coming conqueror, God's people can endure hardship and wait with hope for the perfect completion of God's plans. This changes how we wait and how we endure hardship. How do you need to remember that Jesus is the conquering Lion of Judah this morning? Maybe it's in a way that you're being mistreated. Maybe you're hungry for justice right now. And a person may be mistreating you, neglecting you, or actively mocking your faith. Maybe you're kind of bracing yourself for the holidays because it's another opportunity for those things to happen. Maybe it's a group. Maybe it's people at your workplace. Maybe it's a governmental agency. Maybe it's some form of injustice. We need to remember that in all those situations, they will be handled personally and directly by the all-knowing Lion of Judah. Friends, your injustice will be conquered. It will. And that changes how you think about it now, doesn't it? To know that it's short-term, to know that it's passing away, to know that the Lion of Judah will conquer. Maybe it's not that. Maybe you're just suffering the heartache and sadness of being in a Genesis 3 world. It's more like collateral damage from the curse. Floods or fires or sickness or freak accidents or disabilities or miscarriage or death. You're just weary with living in a cursed world. Maybe it's the exhaustion of parenting and not seeing change. Maybe it's the monotony of work and feeling like the hamster on the wheel. Maybe it's the retirement that you waited so long for and now you have no idea what to do with it. The Lion of Judah will conquer all of the collateral damage that comes from Genesis 3. He will conquer your tears and your sadness. He will wipe them away. And I'm not saying that for right now, that every instance is going to be great right now. I'm saying we have that fixed hope. Randy Alcorn says, we walk on disputed turf between Eden and the new earth, and not that far from either. The dispute will soon be settled. Maybe it's not that, maybe it's sin. It just seems invincible to you right now. The temptation, it's constant, it's unrelenting. You experience sin's power day in and day out. You pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It doesn't feel like it's heard. Your sin still causes confusion. It still disorders your heart. It grieves the Father. It causes doubts of other kinds. As a pastor, there's different seasons of grieving over the nature of sin. It's so funny. People think pastors are so naive. They think we're such doofuses. It's crazy. But, you know, a lot of times we find ourselves in the, in the trenches of, of, of the muck of life, you know. It's like going to an auto mechanic and describing, well, this is the radiator and here's how you, you know, here's what its purpose is and it's odd. But it's hard. It's hard. You feel like the effects of sin are real. And you just get fed up with it, Right? You just want, just come Lord Jesus, like that's all you pray. Just bring it all down, you know. 
I wrote this little poem describing the nature of sin. It says, Oh, the sucking, sapping, silent sound of sin. Chokehold and handhold, gripping shrug, stunning elasticity, negotiating bend, unnecessary stiff, pliable and steel. Same old pothole, crippling shock, there it is, the sucker punch. Monotonous, unwieldy compromise. Calendared imprudence, rhythmic breaching, stop now. Different face, same source, same face, different way. Damn it all to hell. Oh, the saving sound of mercy's song. Distant dying, near, gripped, and yet forsaken. Condescending rend, his face is set, lamb and shepherd still. Not a mark, not one. The perfect doubled over death. The flawless scandal bargained, sold. To ordained clearance rack, slow breathing, slowing, stopped. Sunday morning, new man. Adam's race and face restored. Raise it all to life. Isn't it odd how we can at the same time be so grieved and so burdened by sin and yet still retain the hope of the gospel? And that's because the Lion of Judah is going to come and he's going to conquer the things that you and I have such a hard time conquering. (laughs) He's going to really do it. And we're going to have the freedom and the, the nearness of the Holy Spirit and it's going to be markedly different. The Lion of Judah has conquered sin. And we battle sin differently if we know that it is conquered in Christ. We approach forgiveness differently knowing that sin is conquered. So maybe those things don't describe how you need to remember that Jesus Christ is a conqueror. But I've been praying that this passage and this vision of Jesus, as you look in the manger and see him there, would inject your life with hope. That the Jesus we worship still has total authority and say over all things. The Jesus we worship still stands over his enemies. The Jesus we worship still rules over sin, sickness, suffering, and Satan. The Jesus we worship has won and will win. And injustice, evil, death, and sin are all conquered things. Now, we, in wrapping up, we walk by faith. And we conquer by association with Christ, right? We walk behind the Lion of Judah, trusting in his timing and power and eventual judgment. And he will remain true, though all the earth gives way. Friends, let's remember this Advent season that the conqueror has come and the conqueror is coming. May that bring us hope. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you that that there is a baseline of hope. That the people of the good news, the people who have responded to this gospel, have a permanent hope that's fixed, that cannot be spoiled. That moth and rust don't destroy, that, that thieves don't break in and steal it. It's not subject the way that our joys and the way that our enjoyment of you and our obedience is subject to this cursed world. And we thank you, Father, that that hope is permanent. 
and that Jesus Christ has purchased our inheritance, and that by faith we can walk in the expectation of the, of the reception of that inheritance. God, there are some days that that is, that is all we have to hold on to. God, I pray that this image of the Lion of Judah coming to conquer, that that is a description of the Lord Jesus, that that would encourage our hearts. That we would view suffering and Satan and sin as conquered things in Christ. And that would change how we think about them. It would change how we um, participate in them. It would, it would change the way that we, that we live and think. God, help us to, to marvel, to see your Son as this conqueror. We are so accustomed to seeing him through one lens. But God, we do not want to limit his glory. We don't want a one-dimensional Jesus when he is glorious in millions of ways that we are yet to discover. So help us to see. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.